0: Hello lovelies, welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies, and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy podcast. I am Sophia Apostol, and I'm very excited to have Eden Boudreaux with me. Hi, Eden. Hi, Sophia. I'm so excited to be here. Yes. So everyone listening doesn't know this, but they actually already know your work because... The photo that is my brand um, for Fat Joy, that photo of me sitting at the table all like, you know, chin on hand and like <laughs> gorgeous. I just love that photo so much. That, you took that photo when we did a photo shoot and that became my podcast cover art. So everyone already knows you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, they know, they know one of my many side hustles,
0: Yeah. Yes, that's true, that's true. So... <laughs> So tell us a little bit more about some of your other side hustles. Tell us about who you are, Eden. For sure.
1: So I am an author and a mom and the mom, you know, is generally the main hustle, uh, you know, and uh, I also do some marketing because, you know, being an author doesn't always pay the bills. Um, you know but my my main gig is definitely being a writer and an author and uh, you know I like to I like to talk and write about uncomfortable things so it's uh, (laughs) fun that we get to have that uh, conversation today.
0: Yeah I love that so much. I love when people want to say the things that no one else wants to say like those are my people. I hate taboo topics. I hate when there are things that like oh but People aren't allowed to say that i'm like no we're gonna say it we're gonna say it loudly um because i think that's what brings people together it's when we can surface these truths and get rid of shame so um yeah yeah i've always loved that about you and your work and now you have an amazing book that we're going to talk at length about which is all about truth telling and being really Ooh, eyes open and present to some really traumatic things that happened. So thank you for being here to talk about all that with us. Of course. Thank you for giving me the platform.
1: Because like you said,
0: there's, you know, there's a lot of people out
1: there that just don't want to talk about, they they, they say that they want to tell the truth and they want to, you know, but they don't want to talk about the really gritty, like, you know, stuff that we've deemed unacceptable. So I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah yeah, the rawness of it all, yeah, oh, I love it. I always think about that phrase by John cabot zinn which is the full catastrophe. And I just feel like if we're not talking about the full catastrophe of life, then like <laughs> we're just doing small talk and I'm out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, when you came to do the photo shoot with me, which <laughs> can I just say, I think we rescheduled back and forth so long because it was COVID. And then I had endo and I was like, I cannot do a photo shoot when I am bleeding like this out of my vagina. And then it was like, <laughs> oh, but someone now has a cough. So it took us like we were really back and forth for a while. And then it was so glorious when you showed up, you came to my house and we did a whole photo shoot up here in my office and in my kitchen and outside. Um, and I you were wearing you're a fat woman and you were wearing these super short shorts and I was like damn (laughs) I need some of that courage um and you just so owned who you are in a way I don't even think I said this at the time but I've thought about it since then quite frequently um that I so admired and like wanted to like, I was inspired by, not jealous, like not like that feeling, but more like, oh, I'm so inspired by this person just walking through space and like telling me, you know, instructing me, okay, do this, do this. And there was just such a, an authority to your presence that I, in a in a good way, an authentic way that I so admired. And it actually, at the end of our photo shoot, I don't know if you remember, because it was a little while ago, um, I was like, Eden, I think I think I might. I was very hesitant. I was like, I think I might want to do one where I show my belly. Can, can we? Can we do that? What was? So let me tell. You, what was your impression in that moment? Like, what were you thinking? Like, I felt like a mama bird.
1: I know. <laughs> Was so happy. I mean, you know, photography is something that I come to as a pure love. It is. It makes me a little money on the side, but I really do it because I love doing it and so few things in life we get to do just because we love doing them and one of the reasons they love doing portraits are because of that like because of the connection that you get to have with someone and make them feel really really beautiful in their body and really confident really strong and you know you never as a photographer or, or anyone in, in a position of power like that you never want to push people past their comfort line but I could tell like as we were going like you were just like you went from like feeling like a little t- turned in on yourself to like just being so like free and like, you know, this is me, this is my body and your chin was a little higher. And when you said that, I was like, fuck yes, let's show the food. But like, I was so happy. It was such a wonderful moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I really, I think about that a lot. It really was... um I I can I I think we're just I'm I'll speak for myself I think this is true for many people though and that they'll relate is like I feel like it was just like another step on my body liberation journey to embrace my belly which has changed because of endometriosis and changed because of medication and just being okay with that and um yeah and then capturing it in photos was like another step along that line and you really helped facilitate that so I will always be very grateful um (laughs) my little baby bird moment I love it
1: (laughs) and you know what the thing is is that like we all like it's you know I'm sitting here saying I was so proud of you and it's but like honestly that summer it's funny you were talking about the shorts because that summer was the first summer in like Probably twenty some years of my life, you know, prior to being a kid, that I really was like, I don't freaking care what people think. Like, I was so hot, yeah. <laughs> like, something like a, a confidence, or like, I was just like, it's so damn hot in Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> being a bigger woman like I was just like you know and that was actually also the same summer that I was diagnosed with ADHD so my medication was making me hot and I was just like I can't not wear shorts it was this real you know time in my life that I was like I just was so done like I was exhausted with like caring about like what so-and-so might think if I threw on some shorts to run to the grocery store and like so I've been in that time too and I and I mean I still have days where I'm like oh I gotta you know, figure out a longer shirt to cover my tummy because today I'm not feeling it. But it's it's a beautiful moment
0: when we, we just like let ourselves be in our bodies. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, and that's a perfect lead into the next question that I always ask all my guests, which is what has been your journey with the word fat? That is a great question. I mean, I
1: grew up in born in the 80s, grew up in the 90s. So, I mean, this is like heroin chic, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears era of just like emaciation being the, you know, ideal woman. And, you know, I struggled for a really long time. And I remember, you know, I don't think my family ever's family members ever had bad intentions, but it was that era of, oh, she's just bigger boned and you're just a bigger boned girl. And if you just have a slim fast for lunch instead of having food, then you could drop that extra fat. It's just that kind of like almost passive aggressive fat phobia and fat shaming that, you know, at the time we didn't have words for. We, we, we thought it was for our best. You know, we thought that people just cared about us and, and um, you know, that they were doing the right thing. And so for a really long time I suffered from bulimia and uh, binge eating disorder, you know, I and and the funniest part was I was an athlete. I played soccer competitively. Uh, as I got into my uh, 20s, I did Olympic weightlifting and, and all of this stuff. And, you know, I was a gym rat and I loved moving my body. I ran, I ran a half marathon. I love moving my body, but there was just such like a, a narrative around my big bones. And, you know, and I was, you know, comparatively to some of the other kids, I had thicker thighs and I had a thicker waist. And and looking back now, I realized I was just really in shape. <laughs> yeah. But it was this negative constantly being fed to me that I was bigger. I was bigger bone. It created this this thing in my head where I felt like I had to go days without eating. And then of course, you know, then it would be the binge of just eating until I wanted to grow up. And And, you know, after three pregnancies, Gaining a ton of weight, losing a ton of weight, gaining a ton of weight, losing. Um, you know, it just, it just got to this unbearable point in in the last few years of being like, I don't know. Maybe it's a, maybe it's the miraculousness of turning, you know, over the mid thirties. But I just was like, is this how I'm going to spend the rest of my life? Like, am I really going to waste so much more of my life just? Feeling like every single thing about me is wrong and also feeling like my only value is how I present in my body. That was another big thing for me is, you know, is why is no one concerned about how smart I am or how funny I am or how good of a mom I am? Like, why is everyone so concerned about how my body presents? Like, it's, I'm healthy. I go to my doctor all the time. She keeps, I keep ordering blood tests and she keeps saying I'm fine. So, you know, you're not concerned about my health. You're concerned about the way that you view me. And I just, you know, we'll talk about it with my book. But, you know, in my book, I detail how I was, you know, the victim of a very violent sexual assault and how I was recovering from that. And I think it's these kind of moments in your life where you realize what you want to prioritize and for me, I just didn't, I, it just wasn't a priority anymore to care. It really, I really was like, I don't give a fuck.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And so that was, you know, a a huge, you know, turning point in that journey with the word fat and with my body and and just like accepting it as, as who I am.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, Amazing because I remember the moment for me when I realized I had gone maybe like a week and hadn't done like diet math, had not obsessed about weighing myself multiple times a day, had not been so focused on how like the angle of my body as it appeared to the person I was talking to. Like like the amount of mental and emotional preoccupation was probably 80% of my day. Like it was some ridiculous amount. So suddenly when you're like, I'm not doing that anymore. Oh like what opens up is amazing. Did you have an experience like that? Did you feel that? I, I you know what's funny? I did, but actually kind of uh,
1: in a, in a backwards way because after my assault during my recovery, obviously like so many things get put on the back burner and exercise was one of those things. And I did gain some more weight and that was fine. I went through a whole thing of starting to like really love and accept my body the way it is and not look at a scale and not count calories. But to be very honest, I still missed exercising because it was very much a therapy, right? Especially running and things like that. Like I know people hate to love running, but like just moving my body is such a therapeutic thing for me. But when I tell you the paranoia I have every time, like I, every time I step in a gym, every time I lace up a running shoe, every time I think like, oh, I've kind of been eating a lot of garbage lately. I'd like to eat, you know, a little bit better um, because my body feels yucky, not because of weight. But that it's that narrative. It starts to churn again. And you start to think, Maybe, how many calories did I eat today? How much fat did I have today? Did I get enough steps? And it, it is one of the things that like, you know, it's really so heavily ingrained that it's miraculous when you can stop, but it's always something that's like kind of in the back of your head a little bit.
0: Well, and it doesn't help that it's constantly reinforced by like, you know, so much of what diet culture does is reinforce this through like what we see through social. So it is like it is really like always there. Yeah, 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 I really get that. I I want to shift to the books. I think this all really ties in beautifully with what we're going to talk about. So the book is called Crying Wolf. Um, I'm so curious about when you knew you were going to write this story of what you've called a, a violent sexual assault. Like, when did you know? Okay, I have to write about this because that's huge. That's huge.
1: It was. It was. Um, it was kind of a twofold thing. You know, I think uh, some authors have a huge aha moment. I think um, it's like a seed for some people, and it just starts kind of growing over time. And I know for me. Writing also became a part of my therapy. Um, it became a way to get everything that was in here out. Um, and so that was that's where it' started. I mean I always wanted to be a writer. It was always something that was part of my life and it was a really safe space for me. So I returned to that during therapy and you know eventually with like encouragement from friends and stuff like that, I started, writing personal essays about my assault and about my lifestyle as a polyamorous woman and bisexual and, and, you know, things like little dribbles at a time. I was like, okay, I'm letting this out. I'm kind of freeing it. I'm kind of almost like giving it away into the world. And, but to write a book about it was honestly like, I, I had no intention, no intention whatsoever to write about it. And I remember it was about three quarters of the way through my recovery, and I had actually, because um, when it first happened, when my assault first happened, I did not choose to report. I was very scared. I was very ashamed. I felt like you know, because I was polyamorous, I would immediately be judged. I mean, women are judged if they're virginal, and you know, uh, you know, not a hundred thousand percent innocent, you know. So I, I did not report right away. And after a period of time, working through my therapist we, um, she arranged for me to speak with a detective from the sexual crimes unit to just, just to more so go over, like, what do I do? Like, how do I report this if I wanted to? And, you know, because they make it look really easy on TV, but it is not, you know, it's not an easy thing to report. And, you know, so I, I remember sitting down with this wonderful detective and telling her everything, you know, from beginning to end. And I remember her after, you know, she, she went over the process of what it would be and the, you know, how I would be under investigation, you know, by his lawyer's team, if they even found him and charged him and like just this whole rigorous process that it would be. I remember her saying, you know, she said, I can tell you after 35 years on the force she had been that she said, this person has done it before. He will do it again, and he planned to do it. It's very clear that it was premeditated. She said, but I will also tell you, in Canada, it is a 4% chance that you will get a conviction, let alone... 4%? 4%, let alone see the inside of... That is if you see the inside of a courtroom.
0: Oh, God, Eden.
1: And that was for me, and I remember saying to her, because, of course, I was very kind of calm and collected, and I was, you know it's not that you want to play a part, but I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be very, I didn't want to be seen as hysterical. I didn't want to be seen as flippant. And I remember laughing and saying, so what you're actually saying is, it's a 4% chance that I'll be believed. And I remember it was, she looked at me like, yeah. Fuck. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, was, it was twofold. That was, you know, the first moment that I was like, holy fuck, this is bad. This is, I know it's bad. I get it's bad. But like, it, it, it just was this place of being like, there's, if it's only a 4% chance, that means there are so many of us who have never not that you know people who have gotten a conviction are so much better off and they're healed and they live their lives but there is a sort of conclusion with that there is a sort of bow tied on it or or a benchmark in your recovery that you can say okay now this is the next chapter and if it's only 4% that means so many of us don't have that no how are we supposed to move past that so that was kind of the first seed of of thinking like well, if there's so many of us, that means that more people can relate to my story. And then, in that period, I had, like I said, been writing and publishing the personal essays. And I was very fortunate to write a, a fantastic feature for uh, Runners World magazine about, you know, my running and, and returning to running after the assault. and And it was this long essay. It was a, it was a, like it was supposed to be a center spread piece. It was a big essay. And I remember on their website. They allowed comments. And when I got to the bottom and I looked in these
0: comments. Are you about to make me cry? I'm already like my heart's pounding and I've got so much, so many tears in my eyes. The amount of people who had read through the whole piece,
1: which by the way, wasn't even really about my marriage so much as it was about the running and about being at one with my body and, and be feeling safe outside. And they got all the way through that and they said, well, maybe if you hadn't st- A stepped outside your marriage.
0: This wouldn't happen.
1: And, you know, various different versions of that. And it was this, like, it set this fire in my belly that I was just like, are you kidding me? It is 2023. And we, like, it doesn't matter if I was polyamorous, if I was divorced, if I was single, if I was a widow. Mm -mm. This stuff, you know, these traumas and this violence is not prejudicial. It doesn't, you know, pick me because I had a non-traditional lifestyle. It it is, you know, something that happens to so many women, female identifying, you know, and and men too. It happens to so many people. And it just really became this moment where, you know, I, I sat down and I just thought, if this really horrible, awful thing had to happen, I have to make it mean something. Because, like, otherwise, why not? Why? Why? Why did it happen? If it's not going to mean something to someone, and that was really the 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 you know the the evolution of of going from just talking about it for my own therapy to realizing that I needed to write this book for so many um, so many people who don't who don't
0: have their own voice. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I just. I yeah. I, I'm still thinking about 4%. I, 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 I can't. It's just so fucked up. Like, what do you even say to that? It's so app- appalling. Yeah.
1: Well, and especially in a country, too, where, like, you know, and again, I always state this. I I love our country. It, it has incredibly problematic background, uh, like most colonized countries. Um, but I do love Canada. And I love I love how we as a people, I think, genuinely want to live in a happy and united community. But in saying that, we also tend to be the country that likes to be hush hush about our dark side. Yes. We are very sweep things under the rug. We're very, if we don't talk about it, it's not happening. And that is something that I really noticed when I was doing research and I was writing this book is the amount of things that people just did not know about our judicial system, about the, you know, statistics for not only sexual violence, but violence against women, violence against, you know, marginalized women, whether it be um, BIPOC people, indigenous, trans, you know, it, and people just don't know about it because we just don't talk about it. As a country, we, you know, hush hush.
0: Well, and it's true, and I think, you know, I we, my family, my partner and I had an experience with this with someone who was in my stepchildren's, so my husband's children's life, who sexually assaulted a child, and he is allowed to live with our children, and CAS Children's A got involved. They were basically like, yep, it's verified, but nothing we can do, like, there's no teeth, and I had no idea that that was even the remotest possibility we fought for two years in like through COVID actually with lawyers and we spent many thousands and thousands of dollars and lots of time and heartache and health stress implication like it was really traumatic for us and the bottom line was there's no teeth there was even if the child who had been assaulted pressed charges. Again, similar thing. They were told something similar, very unlikely. It becomes like, who do they believe? It was, it's just, I I think part of the heartbreak was the lack of protection that these systems were designed to, like, they're supposed to protect us. They're supposed to keep us safe. They're supposed to be judicial systems like justice for victims and even with children Mm -hmm. that didn't happen and it's 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 shocking it's shocking to me and it's uh, yeah yeah and I think we get presented with such a different reality. So we see it on TV and we see, you know, like the SVU, like I think about SVU or any of those other kind of shows where it's presented very differently. Now granted that is TV, but like, unless we encounter that system in some way, which I hope no one has to, but you know, you have, I have, like you don't know. And then you're just, it's just flabbergasted. Like what? That's it. There's nothing else to do. There's nothing we can do like this person just gets to walk around. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's, here's the thing, is it,
1: it, it is a history of silencing women's voices is what it is. And again, love my country, but we do tend to be very antiquated when it comes to our education system, our judicial system. I mean, we're, yeah, in Canada, I will, I will say this devil's advocate in Canada, we have no statute of limitation. And so I like to talk about that and make sure everybody I know knows that. Canada does not have a statute of limitation. So if in 10 years from now, I decided to report my assault and file charges, I am allowed to do so.
0: Oh, good. Okay. It's a
1: huge, huge step forward. We also have something that's called third-party anonymous reporting, where when you go and have your rape kit done, you can opt in to have that put into a system with your name anonymously. So if, let's say, another person were to come in with a very, very similar story, they can contact you and you can then choose if the two of you or three or four whatever want to collaboratively press charges. So we also have these systems. There are systems in place. We're not told about them, unfortunately, but there are systems. But this is also the same country where, you know, in I believe it's in Quebec and we you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there are laws that if you are intoxicated, that is a form
0: of consent. No, no.
1: And and it, this is something that, I mean, this is something that rolls over from, you know, 150 years ago. It All of this stuff is really comes back to just silencing women's voices. We don't know about these things. We don't know how bad it is because we're not allowed to speak on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, a male journalist is not going to take this on. I mean, maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize, but very few cis, white male journalists are going to take on these stories. How many female journalists are we seeing? Not enough, you know, so it, it does, you know, it really comes back to being silenced and that's why we don't know about it, you know? And that's why shows like your show and books like my book are so important because we're giving voices, to people who haven't previously had them,
0: yeah, absolutely. Wow, those. I. I mean, I. It's so um, incredible to hear what motivated you and why you decided to do it. Um, as you know, <laughs> part of the coaching work I do in the world is as a creative writing coach. So I have to ask you a process question. Um, so because I've worked with a lot, I actually do a lot, quite a lot of coaching, writing coaching work with people who are writing memoirs and those memoirs tend to want people tend to want to write their memoirs when they have had trauma happen and they're processing through it. They want to share it with others. They want to again do what we're talking about here, which is to um, shine a light on what often um, is remained hidden. Um, so how was the process of writing this for you? Did because there's this always this thing that comes up around not wanting to re-traumatize ourselves by writing it, but also having And so, like, creating a bit of distance, but also still needing to write about it in a way that requires less distance. How did you walk that line for yourself? What was that like for you? Um, It was hard.
1: (laughs) Uh, I can't sugarcoat it. It was incredibly difficult. Um, Now, in saying that, uh, there's lots of different ways that we can write memoir, lots of different ways that we can write nonfiction. um, Because... A lot of unpublished authors, their main goal is to get an agent, to get a publisher, right? So we immediately think, uh, generally, that you have to have a finished manuscript. When it comes to memoir and nonfiction, nine times out of ten, you do not. You want to have a really, really strong proposal. And so, you know, your proposal is not only made up of how you're going to market it and what your comps might be, but generally you have a breakdown of chapters and and scenes and things that you want to talk about. And that was really helpful because what I was able to do starting out, I mean, I am a planner, not a pantser, anyways. So, you know, that worked in my favor. But, you know, what I was able to do was I was able to sit down and kind of, you know, kind of like a pegboard, almost pinpoint what I felt like were the really, really important moments, benchmarks, or like scenes in you know, this timeline of not only my recovery, but, you know, I also go back in time and talk about, you know, my childhood and my adolescence and the things that I experienced being raised in that kind of time period and, you know, raised in a home where there was addiction and there was chaos and there was, you know, a a lot of things that, you know, gave me, you know, attachment style issues, you know, uh, anxious attachment and, you know, issues when it came to love and respecting my body and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so what I was able to do was I was able to pinpoint the really, really important ones and say, this is what we're going to touch on. This is what we're going to cover. And that gives you kind of a sense of detachment because it's almost like a project because you're like, okay, we're just kind of, you know, plotting it out right now. And then, you know, from there, it did become increasingly more difficult because you have to start fleshing out. Yeah, I remember multiple times my editor saying, You know, this is a really great chapter. You told me everything that happened, A, B, C, D. She's like, But I have no idea how you felt about it. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, oh. because it, it is really easy to, you know, detach yourself from that and, and just kind of speak on the mechanical ins and outs of that situation and i do see you know because i've i've started working with aspiring authors and i've started you know reading some works and it, it tends to be those those pieces where they're either getting um feedback or they're getting rejections it, it is really because we're just being walked through the paces of the story the internalized emotion is not there we're not getting that like inner voice um and so that was the really, you know, tough part where I had to really sit down and you kind of just have to, it's like, it's like opening a wound again and just like cleaning or out. And it was, it required a lot of leaning on people, a lot of support from my family and from my friends and from other writers was a really big thing, really finding you know, a good core group of friends who were not only writers but memoir writers who understood what was, that was like. Um but also what was incredibly important was allowing myself to walk away from it. From, you know, and and, and so often we're told like button the chair, button the chair. And I am a firm believer of that. You have to really write every day. You have to stick with it. But at the same time, and I mean I was on contract, so I had a, a deadline. I had to say some days, I cannot look at this story right now or I'm going to break. And I had to honor that. I had to allow myself the permission to say, it's too much. I can't dip my toe back into it. I can't relive this over and over again. Um, And so it's a lot of allowing yourself space and time to rest if you need it and really, really relying on other people really relying and reaching out which is (laughs) coming from a self-proclaimed caregiver i am incredibly challenged when it comes to, to asking for support it is not something i'm good at but it's you know it's it's integral it's really really important and i think um you know those those are the kind of the key points of writing a really especially if it's something that is very heavy you know very trauma driven um, you just got to be gentle with yourself. Just be kind. You're doing some intense work.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you built this support around yourself. And it sounds like you took such good care of yourself through that process. That's... Yeah, that's everything. I'm so glad, Eden, because what I have seen happen, too, is when people don't do that, then it does become too much. They put it aside, and then 10 years later, they're like, oh, but I still feel like I want to do this thing, and yeah, it's, um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful.
1: And here's the thing, though, too, about that, and this is, you know, this is coming from someone who I had a whole ass other career I spent a decade in the beauty industry. I'm coming to being an author, you know, not later in life, but, you know, I'm almost 40. I'm not a youngin. Sometimes you have to set it aside. Yes. That's another thing that, you know, you have to give yourself permission to do is sometimes maybe you do have to shelve it. Maybe it is too much, you know, that is something that I learned in therapy when I first, you know, started talking to my therapist. I, you know, you, you trauma dump, right? And you go, okay, cool. So I'm better now, Right and she said no absolutely not you know recovery is like an onion it is layers and layers and layers of it and sometimes you know because I remember when I went in I was like okay we're going to talk about the assault we're going to fix the assault and she said no no we're starting at the beginning tell me about your first boyfriend you know You have to. You do tend to have to go back and really like unravel a lot of the things that are are stopping you from being able to move past your trauma. And so, you know, I I also think that a a part of what helped me also as well is that I did write it so close to when my assault happened. Um, You know, it happened in two thousand seventeen. I started writing this in two thousand nineteen. So I think being still so much in it probably also helped a little bit because I was already (laughs) miserable. I was already, you know, very like traumatized still. So it wasn't like ripping open a super old wound. It was still a little fresh, but I can see how, you know, if it's been five, seven, six years since something's happened or even, you know, tackling childhood things, sometimes it's, you just, you got to take it at a pace. You got to take it at a pace that's right for you. Don't, you know, don't rush it just because, you know, there's a a trend of memoirs coming out right now and you want to try to catch that wave. Like, write the story in the time that it's meant to be told.
0: Yeah, I love that, Eden, because what I'm hearing you say so beautifully is trusting ourselves, trusting our intuition, trusting what, trusting the wisdom that lives within our fullest selves, and before we start recording, we were talking about what we wanted to talk about. And you said, and this is where I want to go, because you said so profoundly, like, so much of this book is about taking back the power of your own body. Yeah, I say more about that. I think that's profound. I think that's profound. Like that journey. How do we do that?
1: Um, I'm still working on it. Um, It's, you know, and, and I talk about it in part, um, more kind of subtly in the book, but it's definitely something that I've spoken about and, and want to continue to talk about in the future. But I mean, you know, not only with after my recovery, but even with my polyamory, I remember a lot of people being like, that's insane. Why would you do that? Why would you have non-monogamous, you know, relationships and stuff? And a lot of it was taking back power of having control over who had access to my body, uh, control over who, you know, I spent my time and energy on and things like that. And, you know, more specifically after, you know, the assault there, you know, I was always an incredibly sex positive person. I've always, you know, still am to this day. Um, and really, you know, in that time, I was starting to like really explore loving my fat body, as a sexual being, and you know, like, okay, yeah, I'm confident in clothes is one stage, but then like, we get naked, and I'm like, turn off the lights, get the cup, you know. I was still, so I was really, really starting to get, you know, really dive into being comfortable in my fat body in the light. And this is actually a story that's not in the book, and I don't tell a lot, but I feel comfortable talking here prior to my assault with my partner, I had actually started, we had explored um, sex clubs in Toronto. And Toronto has a fabulous sex club that has a
0: fabulous, you probably might have been to this one, that has a fabulous rooftop pool. I have not been to that one. In I went to one, uh, yeah, but I, that is on my list to check out for sure. Yes.
1: So it was one of those places that the first couple of times we went, I was like, Wrapped in a towel, and you know, and everybody's like, and I'm, I'm, you kind of like imagine it like Hollywood that everybody there is going to be gorgeous and glamorous, and I'm looking around and I'm like, there's so many different kinds of bodies here, yeah, so many different kinds, of, and I remember the first time that I like unwrapped. And and it was such like, it was such a beautiful moment. I have to put it in a book sometime, but I remember slipping into the pool and it's nighttime, you know, we got the stars above us and, you know, and we slip into the pool completely nude. And I remember looking around and it was a funny thought because I thought, no one's looking at me.
0: Yes. And it was not
1: like a, oh, no one's looking at me, a self-conscious way. It was nobody gives a fuck. Nobody's looking at my apron belly. Nobody's looking at my stretch marks. Nobody's, you know, calculating how saggy my boobs are. Mm -hmm. It was just everybody was there enjoying their bodies and just being in the moment. And it was such a beautiful, like, step in that journey for me. And then, you know, the assault happened. And I felt very, very much like that was taken away from me. That freedom that comfortability I had of wanting to be seen, I didn't want to be seen anymore. Because you don't, right? You you want to become invisible. You don't want to be noticed. You don't want to be seen. You don't want to be, you certainly don't want to be seen as attractive. You don't want anyone's attention. And it was this real regression of feeling like I just slipped back into my shell. And, and I remember, I remember, you know, because it's my personality, I remember being so pissed off that like, The things I love to do with my body, I couldn't do anymore. I wasn't comfortable with. And it really, really took a, you know, a long time um, and a lot of very slow, safe introduction back into my sexuality and back into play and back into comfortability of showing off my body. Um, It was an incredibly slow process, but I'm glad I took it slow because I think if we try to push ourselves, into being comfortable too easily, we can have negative reactions, and then, then that can backpedal. Um, so yeah, it it just took a lot of really slow internal work on myself, and then choosing the right partners to be with at the time when I was right, you know, comfortable being with them again, and um, and yeah, just kind of meeting her again and and saying like. It's, it's okay for you to come out again and it's okay for you to be, you know, happy and okay and, you know, and not afraid of attention, not, you know, not seeking it for, for outward attention, you know, outward justification, that kind of thing.
0: I just keep thinking of the word vigilance, you know, like l- letting some of that vigilance go.
1: Yeah. That was a lot of it. It, it was funny. I, I, looking back only when I was writing the book, I was able to look back and, and it was something that I hadn't even like quite realized was happening. Um, You know, at the time when I was assaulted, I had like long blonde, you know, bleach blonde hair and and I wore makeup all the time and I was very femme presenting. Um, I'd never been a girly girl, but you know, I like to show off my tattoos and I like to show off the curves of my body. And funny enough, the night I was assaulted, I was actually wearing a T-shirt and jeans, of all things. Um, but you know, I was very femme presenting, and 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 I, looking back, I realized how rapidly over a period of time I had like colored my hair a really drab color. I had stopped wearing makeup. I had stopped getting my nails done. I had started wearing really baggy clothes. i kind of you know leaned more towards a more masculine presentation. And it was this kind of like, it was like an armor. I was being very vigilant about who was viewing me and how they were viewing me. And I think that, you know, if we want to circle back to your whole show, that is a very common trait with a lot of fat women. You know, I mean, you can see it just in the way that our clothing is marketed. You know, flowy, big, prints, all of this like matronly type crap. It's because... For so long we've been told that we can't be viewed as sexual beings we can't be proud of the way that we're appearing
0: in the world or we shouldn't be like like how dare like almost like a how dare you you go lose weight then you come back and then you can earn i want to mention this tiktoker that i just found
1: and she has been such an inspiration for me because, um, you know, this, this is, plays into it. I used to wear all black. All I ever wore was black, black pants, black shirts, because it was this drabness. I wanted to kind of like, I was really afraid of color and afraid of patterns and being loud and big and taking up space i was so afraid of it and i've started to you know i'm still a little i think i'm still a little goth kid at heart so you just started putting a little bit of color into my wardrobe and stuff but i found this fantastic influencer on tiktok um her name is jeanette birchfield and she is a beautiful african-american woman who is the colors of the rainbow like if you took cotton candy and made it into a person this is her. And I follow her because not only is she just like a ray of sunshine all the time, but she is so inspiring for how much space she allows herself to take up and how bright and fun and like exciting she allows herself to be without ever apologizing for it. And that is something that I think like it's so hard for fat women, fat people in general to feel like they're allowed to do.
0: I find it's so interesting talking to people at different stages along their kind of their what I'll just call the fat liberation journey. Um, And then when they do hit the taking up all the space stage, like the changes that happen, the way they find their own style, they find their own voice. And we're talking about clothing and makeup, but like, and that's part of it. But there's also almost like an energetic shift that really happens. And just that comfort with being seen fully in the body yeah and all the different ways we can do that like you said it
1: it it is you know it may start with clothing and makeup and hair and whatever but it is it's all about permission about allowing ourselves to be you know like to take up space right like and i mean that's something that we're always told, I mean, as women, period, but let alone being bigger people, you know, we have to shrink ourselves so much. And that all comes, you know, it all circles back to our personalities too. I mean, how often are we trying to not be the center of attention in a conversation, not talk louder than the person next to us, not, you know, challenge an opinion with our own. So it it is kind of, it is all interlinked is, you know, I think when we start allowing ourselves to be, center of attention or to, you know, to, to express ourselves the way that we want to, it all plays into the same factors.
0: There was a, um, there was a boxing gym that unfortunately it was in Toronto and it closed during COVID. And I used to go when I was, when I lived in the beach area a few years ago, um, that they threw, it was a women's only gym, um, or female identify only, Uh, boxing gym and there were all these signs all over the walls that were messages like this and it was so cool to be like hitting the heavy bag and like seeing all these quotes about take up space like you get to be here you are strong your body is glorious you are glorious like it's just we just the very physical reminder that it's okay for us and and especially with boxing, which is like this pretty aggressive, you know, you you know powerful and strong and fast and like I I just I love the energy of boxing for that reason because I feel like it connects to a part of myself that I through sport I was able to, but even with sport as a kid, I was still so um, mm, held back by a lot of you know, well, I oh, but I but I don't want to like. You know, I played soccer with all the boys. It's a long backstory, but um, because I was like the only girl. (laughs) that played in this town. And, uh, you know, it was like, oh, but like, I can't like be better than him. Like I would always like dampen myself. And- Well, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole
1: conversation around, you know, women. And and that I do talk about in the book. That's something that I felt was important to like, you know, go back in time and talk about like our childhood and our, our adolescence growing up that plays, you know, it plays very, very strongly into- why people don't report, why women don't report sexual violence because we are being told from the time that we're young to be quiet, to be small, to be invisible. You know, I can't, you know, in the book I talk about kind of the, the rules for being a girl, and, you know, when boys are being taught how to climb trees and how to throw a punch and how to stand up for themselves, uh, you know, we're being taught how to hold our keys between our knuckles. Yes. And how to check the back seat when we get in a car. And how, you know, I I still to this day, and again, I don't believe that, you know, my, my family members ever had any negative connotations. It was just things that were passed down from their grandparents' generation. But, you know, I remember viscerally being told, you know, don't make him mad. You know, if you don't want to be there or you're getting a creepy vibe, you know, be really polite and, and find lie to find a way to leave because you don't want to make him mad. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to upset him. You don't want to be too flirty, but you don't want to be too cold. You, you know, we're really, we're really like, you know, conditioned from such a young age to feel like our authentic voice is not important. And we have to have this very strictly curated one to not only be seen as valuable, but to survive, to not be a victim of violence, to not get hurt. Um, That, yeah, it definitely, it, it plays into so many roles, especially when you're in a competitive. I think, you know, I think that is something that you see with women in sport. You know, when they're in competitive leagues, they're seen as like, butch and bitchy and, you know, uh, this, that and the other thing because it's the competition factor. We're not supposed to be competitive. We're not supposed to want to win. But then, you know, I know a lot of women go into things like boxing or yoga or, you know, um, MMA or things like that uh, where it's it's really more one-on-one. Like you, if you go competitive, that's one thing, but just in practice, it's just you and your practice. And so you don't have to feel like you have to make yourself small for anybody
0: because it's just you. Yeah, so true. When you were going through recovery and experiencing PTSD, one of the things you had mentioned before we started re- recording was that you were trying to find support for symptoms you were experiencing. And they were your symptoms were basically ignored and you were just told to lose weight. Oh, I mean... What the fuck? Say more about that, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just I I don't know why am I still surprised but I still am. Like ugh. It was,
1: you know, I mean it was before I was diagnosed with PTSD, which is so common. I mean, really it's, you know, when it comes to violent trauma and PTSD from that it is very, very hard to get a like formal diagnosis for that. Um, And, but I remember going in and I remember being very honest with my doctor early on about what happened. Um, And, you know, then kind of repeatedly coming back to her and saying like, I'm not sleeping at night. Like I cannot, there were days that I would go without being able to get a wink of sleep. I could not sleep. Um, I was starting to have what felt like heart palpitations. I, you know, tightness in my chest. And I was like, I'm way too young for a heart attack, but like, what is this? You know, I was having, you know, the shakes. I was feeling faint. I was dizzy. I was hyperventilating. I was having all of these physical connotations, you know, of my PTSD. And I remember every time I would go in, she would, you know, think for a moment and then she'd say, okay, hop on the scale. Oh my God and I'd hop on the scale and she'd do, you know, all the other, you know, checks, right? And then it would be like, well, you know, I really think it would be really helpful if you, if you know, if you worked to lose a few pounds. And I was like, this is, this has nothing to do with my weight, but they would always find a reason, you know, oh, well, the chest pains, well, you know, heart disease is very common in people who are overweight and you know, oh, well, the shakes, well, it might be your blood sugar levels or your thyroid because of your weight. And it was something that, like, oh, and you're not sleeping because the weight of your body is making it hard for you to breathe so clearly. And it was these things that, like, they just, they, if, I think the thing that bugged me the most is that if my doctor hadn't had all the information that she had about my assault, maybe I could see how she could say, okay, this is the first thing we're going to turn to because, you know, a B C. But the fact that she knew, she knew what I had gone through, she knew the trauma that I experienced, and she still was like, Oh, well, clearly it's because you're overweight. Clearly it's because you're obese. Oh no. And it took months. It took months and months and months. And it took actually, it took getting to a very, very low point where I had considered self-harm and I had considered suicide to finally and it was actually more through my therapist who had kind of circled back to my doctor to be able to say like no this is PTSD this is what she's experiencing and we need to you know give her medical care aimed towards that but you know I'm not the first person to to hear that I mean so often we are just overlooked because of our weight
0: yeah absolutely well and that just makes me think like for the people who don't have a therapist who advocates on their behalf. And I mean, we talk about this on the show all the time around um, how medical practitioners often create the problems that they then blame fat patients for, which is they create a really um, harmful clinical setting so fat people don't want to get care because they know they're just going to be shamed. So then fat people often don't get care in a timely manner, which means things get worse when they really needed care. And It's just this cycle that repeats and repeats. And I'm just I'm so grateful for your therapist, for advocating and for you getting the medical care that you needed.
1: Yeah, I was incredibly lucky. And I always say that. And, and the other thing is, I mean, like, let's be realistic. I am a white woman. Who was living in, you know, a middle class ish suburbs? You know, if I was a marginalized person, or or a queer person, you know, in in queer presenting person, because I am queer, but you know, queer presenting, trans, BIPOC, you know, I would have had even significantly more difficulty. And you know, and the same thing plays into, you know, the fitness world and stuff. You know, when I see these people go on rants about, oh, that people should be at the gym why would I be at the gym so that you can make fun of me while I'm at the gym? Yeah. And take videos of me and post it. Yeah. No. So, you know, when you're saying, Oh, we'll just go to the gym, you know, to help this, that, the other health issue, but it's not a safe place to do so. You know, when we're not being given safe places, then you can't, you know, say like I told you so when, when we spiral, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, how
1: are you with your body now i am feeling good i'm feeling really good um you know it's like it's like many things i do wish that i could move it more for my physical health um you know i still i still struggle sometimes with you know going back to that worry of how i'm being viewed and especially now with the book coming out i'm so much more visible <laughs> That I have been before so you know it is it is taking a lot of dedication to checking in with myself more regularly and really like almost every single day checking in with myself and saying okay like how are we feeling and why are we feeling this way and how can we get back to just like loving ourselves but you know I've I've definitely, I feel like in the in the last couple of years, like I've just, I've started to really feel at home in my body again. I'm really like in control of how it's, you know, who I give it to and who I allow to have access to it, and how much energy I spend on caring about what the outward of it is, uh, you know, versus the internal. I think that's something that really helps is that I'm focusing a lot more internally on how my body feels, whether it be emotionally or physically, you know, like when, whenever I, you know, strive to eat better, let's say p- people say, oh, you're trying to lose weight. No, I'm just trying not to poop seven times a day. <laughs> 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 I'm shot real bad. Yeah. way too much cereal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that's really been a big help is, is, you know, when I when I think about health, I'm more thinking about internally, how it's helping my physical health internally and my mental health and, you know, and not worrying so much about the outside and I, I, I'm decorating the outside in a way that makes me feel happy and proud and, and like I'm excited to be seen and then I'm just not worrying about the rest, you know, because it's, life is really, really short. Like it's real, I'm not even like old yet, but like it is really short and it just sucks to think how much of our lives we spent and how much we could have accomplished <laughs> if we had spent so much less time worrying about what jeans fit better and like how we're, you know, sitting with like, oh, my gut sucked in and like, it just, it's just, yeah. It's just, I just want to like, I'm at a place where I'm just happy to like be living my life and really experiencing it and not wasting time on all that other crap.
0: Hallelujah, so good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but in saying that, that does change every day though. And I think it's important to make that note and to talk about that because sometimes we see in TV and media, we see these success stories of people coming you know, to love their bodies and then we feel bad when we have a day that we don't because there are going to be days, and I've had them, you know, I've had days where my body dysmorphia is running rampant, and I look at myself in the mirror, and I'm like, oh my god, I hate it all, and I don't want to leave the house, because it's just, it's old, it's old trauma, you know, resurfacing, and that's okay, It that's today, and tomorrow will be better, and so, you know, that's that's also important to, you know, allow yourself to understand, is that some days are not going to always look like that, but if, the majority of days look better, then that's what's really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I often think about, and it might have been my therapist who said this, that um, the common, or I think it's like a therapy phrase where they say feelings aren't forever. And I think about that a lot. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling this right now, but feelings aren't forever. Feelings aren't forever. And, and then I bring in like practices that can that I know support me when I'm not feeling great people that I know support me when I'm not feeling great and yeah that's how it is we just we kind of ride those waves and um and there's a lot of trust involved like trusting yeah which is excellent um so what brings you joy Eden how do you connect to joy how do you choose joy I'm very interested in how people relate to the concept of joy I
1: used to think that joy was, like, really big. Like, it had to be a really big thing. It had to be rewarding myself with something. It had to be going out and, like, you know, dancing and, like, having, you know, treating myself to a dinner or something like that. But I've, in the last, like, couple months, like, I've really discovered, like, cozy joy. And allowing myself, like, quiet moments and slow allowing myself a slow life because I've always really had quite a quite a chaotic life or, you know, a very fast paced life, especially with kids, you know, it's never a dull moment, you know this. And, you know, and it, and it was funny because uh, I was talking with a friend the other day and I, I heard this fantastic Phrase, You know, because we're, as women, we're categorized all the time. You know, the sexy woman, the smart woman, the coy. And it was an interview with uh, Lily Reinhardt from the Riverdale show. And she was saying that someone had described her as a cozy woman. And I just loved that. Because it was just this, like, permission to just, like, be slow and comfortable and, like, at peace. And so, you know, it's for me, it's like it's just about like slowing down is where I find joy now. Like taking a moment to like turn off my phone and like put on a record, uh, you know, and listen to a song that I love and just like be in the moment with it. I've taken up crocheting. Oh, I love it. Really into you know, textile work and like, and it's this thing where I can be really, really involved in the moment that has nothing to do with my outward, like, oh, you know, output, you know, it's not, I don't have to produce anything. I don't have to be on. I can just like be in that moment. And that's like, that's where I'm finding a lot of joy right now is just like being quiet and cozy and slow and allowing myself to be that way
0: that's so um such a great example of the like being anti-toxic productivity anti-capitalist like what you can find joy just sitting and listening to music and that's okay you don't have to like buy something or have some kind of goal at the end i remember being challenged by some close friends to be like sophia could you find like a hobby or something to do that has no goal like there's no end goal and i and i remember being like but, but then, why would I do it? Like i couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around this idea. And I love cozy joy. I'm gonna take that term because I feel like I too have found cozy joy over the last couple of years in a way that I never had before. So I'll like sit and like just sit my coffee. Cozy joy has also become I got really away from reading fiction and I've rediscovered fiction and fantasy and sci-fi specifically. Oh, and I'm like, that to me is cozy joy. Have a warm tea, a book on my lap. Oh, it's the best.
1: It's just this allowing ourselves to like, almost like, it's almost allowing ourselves to kind of go back to being young again when we didn't care about the things that we loved or found interesting. We didn't care how other people viewed them. Because that's kind of like the thing for me is that I get really, really wrapped up in like, You know, the whole aesthetic world, you know, of branding or Instagram or whatever. And it's like, you know, so often we see people do these hobbies that they're, you know, are done in a way that they can have other people view them and we can give people's opinions on it. And it's like, I just want to like be able to enjoy things and do things that are just for me. And I really don't care like how anybody else thinks of me doing it. It's just, it's just the pure, unfiltered joy that you get from doing that experience that feels so good
0: well this has been a very joyful experience eden (laughs) i'm so happy to talk to you again i'm so excited for your book by the time this episode airs your book will be out i hope everyone goes and gets a copy i will have read it by then as well um and just huge congratulations on on releasing releasing this gift to the world thank you so much i'm i'm really excited and i
1: really i hope it finds the people that it's meant to find right this book wasn't written for everybody and i don't you know i'm not worried about it reaching everybody i just want it to reach the people that that need it so i'm excited
0: it will it absolutely will thank you for being here eden thank you so much sophia Before we go, I'd like to read a poem, because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about, expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Oh, I really loved my conversation with Eden Voudreaux, talking about reclaiming our power, reclaiming ourselves, the power that is our birthright. It had me think about this poem by Denisha Lamaris. The title is, The Heart Is Not, and then the next line, the poem starts, so I'm gonna read them together. The heart is not a pocket, a thing that can be turned inside out by anybody's hand, not a place for pebbles or loose change, not to carry old receipts. It does not tear at the seam. It doesn't have a seam. It cannot be torn. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at FatJoy.life, on YouTube at YouTube.com slash at FatJoy, and on Patreon at Patreon.com slash FatJoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly Fat Joy Day, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.